back online and listen to the previous messages, that's fine. I'll give you a short synopsis of the last three weeks in less than one minute. The first two weeks, we dealt with a historical survey dealing with both the English Reformation and the rise of the Puritans in England during the 1500s and 1600s, so a period of approximately 120 or so years, 1560 to about 1680. Um, So if you really are into history and the church's history and kings and queens and things like that, you can listen to that. Last week, we talked about the Puritans' emphasis on the Bible and their dependence on the Bible. And this week, we're going to take on another topic, and it is the Puritans and preaching. I keep telling you that I have seven weeks to teach. It has been shortened to six out of for a variety of reasons. So next week, we'll talk, not next week, in two weeks, we'll talk about the Puritans and the Christian life. And I hope in that uh, section also to give you a little primer to works of the Puritans that you might want to read. And then the last week, which will be like a month from now or something, we'll do a biography on John Owen, uh, which will be exciting. And I should start reading that biography now so I can teach on it. That's a little reminder for myself. Um, because you're already sitting down, I want you to stand up as we read God's Word to begin. We're going to read it in Acts chapter 2. Some people that lead um, us in teaching adult Sunday school lead in singing first, but we're going to read God's Word for your benefit. So chapter 2 of Acts, verse 14, and we're going to read a significant amount, so follow along with me. And this is Peter preaching in Jerusalem after he's been filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Verse 14, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter continues, Brothers, 
I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would not set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out into that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. And then the reaction. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Oh God, we praise you for today. And Lord, we um, praise you for uh, the truth of your word and what it reveals to us about Jesus and about your plan for all eternity to save a people for your glory and for our joy. And Lord, even as we uh, read this text from your word, Lord, we're reminded of uh, the primacy of preaching and the importance of your gospel being proclaimed. And Peter, in some ways, Lord, symbolizes that for us today in a unique way. Um, But Lord, I pray that we would see uh, the faithfulness of your proclaimed word in um, in, in the message of the New Testament here, Lord. Lord, I also ask that you would help us, Lord, to see um, why preaching is necessary in the local church. And Lord, I pray that we would see that through the uh, eyes of the Puritans, Lord, who are uh, imperfect men, yet a model for us, for us to study. So Lord, I pray that in our study of them, Lord, that you would cause us Uh, to know you better, and to desire to know you better. So we ask, Lord, that you would bless this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Um, I need a handout. Does anyone have a handout for me? Yeah, I'll take somebody's. Thank you. I meant to get one, and I got distracted. Um, okay, so if you don't have a handout, ask somebody else to get you one, because I can't give you mine. Uh, there is, there's a lot of information on these four pages, so I hope you can follow along closely with me. I've given you almost every one of my points and subpoints, but then you can take some notes as you go. Um, all right, so as I talked about, the Puritans are a group of people primarily in England in the 1600s, uh, 1500s and 1600s, are, their goal is to reform the church. Uh, they want to reform the worship of the church. They want the worship of the Church of England to be more biblical. And, um, and one of the ways 
one of the main ways they accomplish that is through preaching. Um, this period of time in the Puritan era is often called the golden age of preaching. There is your one blank you are responsible for filling in. The rest of it you just fill in yourself. So this is the golden age of preaching. The Puritans sought to reform uh, the formal worship practices of the Church of England, and ultimately they did not succeed in that as we look through that church history survey about uh, their role in the life of the church. They didn't complete that task. However, what they did do was help to revive the souls of everyday people by preaching. Um, Preaching by mouth or by pen, as one historian has said, was life for the Puritan. Um, So I think it's important for us to talk about the difference between the Puritans' view of preaching and what they were preaching and what the Anglican church. So let's remember, when I say Anglican, it's the Church of England. Okay, so this is a distinct church from the Roman Catholic Church. They've broken away uh, during the reign of Henry VIII from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, So the Church of England or the Anglican Church has distinct practices of its own. And I'm going to refer to the non Puritan Anglicans as mainliners. It's kind of a more of a modern term. We like to say these are the mainline denominations today, and these are the evangelical denominations, but I'll refer to them as the mainliners. So the mainline Anglican leadership thought that the Puritans overemphasized the role of preaching. Um, preaching in the Anglican church was often just a recitation of one of Thomas Cramner's hom- homilies from the Book of Common Prayer, um, and there's a reason for that. Um, the homilies, that's just another word for sermon, were pre-written, and the idea that, so in the initial part of the English Reformation, Thomas Cramner actually wrote out homilies and sermons because the priests and pastors of the time had not really been educated accurately biblically, um, but as, we've, as the Church of England has evolved and there's been more training, um, pastors actually had the ability to communicate biblical truth better. Um, however, the Church of England wanted to stay within this narrow view of these, this book of homilies from Thomas Cramner, and they added to them and all that. So remember, one of the big things that all the monarchs are wanting in the Church of England and all of their kingdom, and most monarchs want this, is uniformity. They want things to be uniform because they can control better when there's uniformity. So uniformity in worship. I need to say again... The idea of separation between church and state is a more modern ideal. It hasn't occurred yet, okay? So the the relationship of the rulers of the age and the church is very much interlinked, okay? But you got to get over that to get rid of your American sensibilities that there's supposed to be a separation of church and state, so just, just get that out of the way. But there is a Church of England, and they have specific practices Uh, But the monarchs liked the idea of the pastors preaching the homilies because they could control the message. So they had control of the spin of what was being preached. They also preached shorter. This is the Anglican preachers. And the, the, the preaching was not the central theme of the worship service. It was one of several elements things like the liturgy, so like the, the readings or the singing that they would do might be elevated in, at the same level as the preaching. Um, also, the Lord's Supper and how they treated 
uh, the Lord's table would have been very important, and that's different than how the Puritans viewed preaching as the most important thing. Um, the Puritans believed that the Anglican preaching was, uh, not only was it um, kind of these, based on these homilies, but they also saw some man-centeredness in their preaching. They believed that their, the preaching of these homilies was um, too ornate, oratorical, metaphysical, immoralistic. It's a lot of words there, but you think about some of them. Um, moralistic, so, you know, do good because you are under the service of the king, so follow the king's edicts or the queen's edicts. Uh, too ornate, maybe too much focus on what man is saying versus what God's word says, and, and uh, oratorical, dramatic in its reading, and metaphysical, probably more ph philosophical, probably mixed in other elements besides just the Bible, uh, things like Aristotle and Plato, classical type learning. Um, and that's one of the things the Puritans were opposed to, was that the preacher's classical education uh, was key over their understanding of the Bible. Um, they lacked, in the Puritans' mind, a holy zeal and an urgency and a, and a, and a dependence on the Spirit's power. Um, they would say, the Puritans, regarding the Anglicans, that there was a lack of authoritative speech. They weren't saying, thus says the Lord. Um, uh, they believed that too much of the homiletic-driven preaching was just fancy speech, that it brought attention to the preacher's skill, but didn't probe the heart. Thomas Brooks says this about the Anglican preaching, starched oratory may tickle the brain, but it is plain doctrine that informs the judgment, that convicts the conscience, and that wins the heart. So, sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? Um, we, oftentimes, men are content to have their brains tickled. Um, yet the Anglicans didn't like the Puritans. This is, this is the tension we're dealing with right here, is the Puritans and the Anglican leadership. Uh, they believed that the Puritans were fanatics, that they were too intense, and they were marked by enthusiasm. Um, and then Owen would agree with that. He was enthusiastic, and he said one of his... Uh, major quotes we've heard from Owen throughout the ages is, he was a man preaching as a dying man, speaking to dying men. Um, so the need for supernatural work. So there's definitely a distinction between Puritan preaching and Anglican preaching. Understand that? And that's the battle that's being drawn at this time. So now we have an idea about that. Let's talk about the characteristics or the, okay, all these are P's all your Roman numerals. So we've got Puritan preaching in its primacy, power, plainness, program, and passion. I stole that, so that's not me. Um, so let's talk about each of those things. The primacy of preaching. The Puritans believe that God has built his church by the instrument of preaching. This view meant that the Puritans saw preaching at the center of their worship and devotion when they're gathered. Um, this is what they said about the character of preaching. That's A under Roman numeral 2. A simple definition of preaching was this by John Preston, a public interpretation or dividing the word performed by an ambassador or minister who speaks to the people instead of God in the name of Christ. So he is 
publicly interpreting and dividing the word. He is an instrument or an ambassador of God, uh, standing in God's place because of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Um, so that's one of the characteristics of it in its def- definition. They believe that preaching must be fenced in by Scripture. All right, I like fencing metaphors. Russ does too, because he keeps his horses in fences. Um, but their idea was their preaching was not to go outside what the Bible says. So here's the Bible. I'm not going to say more than what the Bible says. Um, and you compare that to their Anglican friends or cohorts or not friends, I don't know what they are, who are looking to use other things outside of the Bible uh, to preach to men. Um, oftentimes, the, they were so... Um, um, influenced by the scriptures. They identified themselves when they were to the point of getting degrees, not as their master's degree or their doctorate's degree. They'd say their name, and they'd say preacher of the gospel or preacher of the word. So they emphasize their solemn duty in that way. Uh, the sermon, as they preached, they believed it ought to be a mirror to God's word. So it's not something on top of, but a mirror to God's word. And it was for God's sake, man's sake, and the preacher's sake. Um, They believed that the preacher was a servant and that the words he brings should be God's words, not his. And within the character of preaching, they expected biblical results from preaching. They truly believed, like Isaiah says, that God's word would not return to him void. So that's the character of preaching. Um, The necessity of preaching... They saw preaching as God's great converting ordinance. So like Paul in 1 Corinthians, they would say, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. So when they came to the pulpit to preach, they were going to preach the gospel. Uh, Thomas Hall says they must, I have a ton of quotes, just be ready for them. Most of them are pretty short. Thomas Hall, so I'm just going to throw names out to you. So write down these names as I say them because you're like, oh, that's a Puritan. Okay, great. Um, Thomas Hall said, they must either preach or perish. This must be done or they are undone. Um, Robert Trail says, an unpreaching minister is a sort of contradiction. It's what you do as a minister is you preach. John Owen says, the word is like the sun in the firmament. The word is. It hath virtually in it all spiritual light and heat. But the preaching of the word is as the motion and beams of the sun which actually and effectually doth communicate that light and heat unto all its creatures. So preaching has a unique role, um, and it's a necessity. Um, it, there's also serious, a seriousness or a dignity to preaching. Um, it's a serious undertaking for the man of God to be God's mouthpiece. So this is, this is really helpful thinking about uh, what I hope this will... Um, do for you and me practically is that you would um, understand the weight that Dan and Keith especially bear as they preach and the importance of it and hopefully it will drive us to be more faithful to pray for them and to support them in their role as preachers here Um, but it's a serious undertaking to be God's mouthpiece when you're preaching a message of either salvation or damnation it is serious Um, they, they saw the dignity of preaching in the way that they placed the pulpit in the center of the stage or the altar. 
um, or on the stage instead of the altar. <clears throat> on their pulpits was an open Bible, which symbolized the source of all true preaching. Um, but the fact that, um, that preaching was uh, a dignified thing required that the minister or the preacher be a man of holiness. Um, he had to pursue living a right life so that his own life would be consistent with his preaching. So it's a big deal that the preacher would be holy and set apart. There's also the momentousness of preaching. Each time the preacher ascends to the pulpit, he must treat it like it is his first time or very well could be his last. So I'm preaching, not me, who Keith's preaching today could be his last message. Let's just be faithful to preach. Preaching is not to be toyed with. It's not to be uh, ornately ordained with things with man-centeredness, it's to be preaching God's Word. Uh, the aim of the preacher was to please God, not people. Richard Baxter, so Richard Baxter is a very important figure in the Puritans. His book, it was an instruction manual for pastors, it's called The Reformed Pastor. And when it says reformed, he's not talking theologically reformed. He's talking reform, like a revival type uh, situation, like where the, the pastor is reformed in his practices, not in his theology. So in his book, The Reformed Pastor, he says to pastors, in the name of God, brethren, labor to awaken your hearts before you come. And when you are in the work, that's while you're preaching, <clears throat> that you may be fit to awaken the hearts of sinners. Remember, they must be awakened or damned. And a sleepy, a sleepy preacher will hardly awaken them. Speak to your people as to men that must be awakened here or in hell. That's, he's, it's seriousness to preaching. Um, and it's one that I think we do well here and consider it. But as a church, we, as a whole, we could all do better. So that's the primacy of preaching. Next point is the power of preaching. <clears throat> so... The, the three subpoints here are the idea that the Puritan pastors preached to the mind, to the conscience, and they preached in order to woo the heart. Um, the idea of preaching to the mind. They preached clearly. They preached clarity and with reason to rational beings. They refused to set the mind and heart against each other. So they were preaching to the whole person. Um, oftentimes, there's a temptation in, in, in teaching and preaching to only uh, teach about the mind, you know, to the intellectual aspects of things. And then sometimes in evangelicalism, in the mainstream evangelicalism, there's an emphasis on the heart. And we, we're going to do what the heart says and follow the heart to a neglect of the mind. The Puritans are combining those two things, uh, not pitting the heart against the mind. Um, they, they believe that ignorance is the mother of heresy rather than true devotion, and that holiness is rooted in thinking rightly. So you need to be able to understand these truths, and that was the job of the preacher to do that. They labored to show sinners the unreasonableness of persisting in sin, and by doing that, they stressed the certainty of death in eternity. 
So that's preaching to the mind. They also preach to the conscience. Um, the, the Puritans pointed out specific sin, sins to their congregations in order to pierce their consciences. I love this quote. This is from Owen. It says, We must go with the stick of divine truth and beat every bush behind which a sinner hides. I'm like, oh. Okay, so that, that seems extreme, but this is the beautiful part of it. Okay, until like Adam who hid, he stands before God in his nakedness. Okay, that's great, right? Let's, let's reveal sin, but why? Because that was necessary so that the sinner could see his need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So yeah, that seems really serious. Hey, we're just going to beat you when you're behind that bush so you come out. But it's so they would see their need for Jesus that they can't clothe themselves in righteousness, no matter how many times they follow the book of common prayers, liturgy perfectly, they can't be righteous unto their own. They need Jesus. Um, and that, that really blessed me this week, and I hope it did you as well. The beginning part was funny, though. Um, they also preached urgently, directly, and specifically to people in order that they would be confronted with their need for repentance. Um, that's based, obviously, on, on Luke 24, 47, that repentance and remissions of sins would be preached in the name of Jesus. So they preached to the conscience. They also preached to woo the heart. Um, Walter Craddock says, we are not sent to get galley slaves to the oars or a bear to the stake. So that's not what we're doing. But he sends us, God sends preachers, to woo you as spouses to marry you to Christ, to, to, to stir up affections for Christ in your life, stir up your heart. Um, so we don't think of the Puritans that way. I mean, those of us, not those of us, you guys that have read some of Edwards, you know his, uh, and even some of the revival of Puritan thought has been really helpful, but the historical record towards the Puritans has been a very serious, morose, morbid introspection. Yet, um, their desire was to create love and devotion for God. Um, they were affectionate, zealous, and optimistic. Not, opt not optimistic about man, what man can do, but Christ. Um, so we don't usually use the adjectives of affectionate and zealous and optimistic talking about the Puritans. But they were full of gratitude for what Christ had done and preached his loveliness to draw sinners to repentance. Um, William Ames says, Preaching, therefore, ought not to be dead, but alive and effective, so that an unbeliever coming into the congregation of believers should be affected and, as it were, transfixed by the very hearing of the word so that he might give glory to God. So preaching should be um, affectionate. It should be um, drawing people into it, um, not, not because a man is doing it, but by the authority of God's word. All right, so we've talked about the primacy and the power. The third point, number four on yours, is the plainness of preaching. All right, so this is not, when we say plain, we think vanilla, or we think even worse than vanilla is like plain yogurt, you know? Vanilla at least has a sweetness to it, but you think plain, you're like, oh, it's kind of tart, and it's what my wife makes me eat when I try to be healthy without sugar, uh, but it is not, um, that's not what they mean by plain. It's what they're also not meaning is that it's anti-intellectual. 
but it is dignified communication that promotes understanding for all people. So boiling down the scriptures to where they're clear. I'm cheating again because I kept telling you I'm not going to talk about Americans. But there is an American missionary to the natives named John Elliott. I learned this week that the first printed book in America was a Bible. Not a surprise. But it was a Bible in the language of the Native Americans translated by John Elliott. That's a good fact. You should know that. Um, So John Elliott was said to have preached so plainly that the very lambs, that's who he's preaching to, might wade into his discourses on his themes wherein elephants might swim. So he's going to take the lambs into the deep, deep waters, but he's doing it carefully. And um, anyway, lambs and elephants is interesting. His goal was, or their goal as Puritan preachers was to shoot arrows of truth to the heart, not over their heads. It was not to dazzle or promote human wisdom. Um, They pointed their hearers to the power of God and his word, not the gifts of men. All that is your section on defined for the plainness of preaching. And they had plain biblical exposition. Three main points, oh, more blanks for you, of emphasis for them in their exposition was one, get the meaning of the text in its context. And then there was a time of explaining the doctrines that were revealed in that text. So, doctrinal explanation. And then third was the application. And that would be those doctrines rightly collected to the life and manners of men. And that was the uses. We talked about that last week. They called those the uses aspect. Well, okay, now you've told me all this. What do I do with it? How do I use this? We talked about a lot of that last week. So that's plain biblical exposition. Also plain doctrine. Um, So doctrine was important to them. Uh, William Perkins said that doctrine is the science of living blessedly forever. William Ames says that doctrine or teaching of living to God, that's what they were teaching, doctrine living to God. If you asked a Puritan, should one preach doctrine, the Puritan would answer, what else is there to be preached? (laughs) They preach the reality of sin, the doctrine of God, and the need for sanctification. Uh, Scripture, though, is what must dictate the doctrinal emphasis. So, you don't need to bring other things in that are not in the Scripture that you're preaching. Um, They also believe that the whole of doctrine is to be preached, um, not just the petty favorites of the preacher, which probably is a temptation for everyone. But let the text explain the doctrines that are there. Um, So, that's plain doctrine. Plain application. This is also the uses of the text. This refers back to uh, biblical exposition as well. But their goal was to reform the life from ungodliness. Their point was to drive the Word of God home. And Baxter uses this analogy of like someone screwing a screw in, and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter, and it's like they give example and example to pierce the conscience. And as they, they just go a little deeper and a little deeper. They turn it more and more. And that's a really interesting analogy as they are pointing out um, 
uh, the truth of the scriptures and then applying it as well, like they're kind of continuing to press on that more and more and more. You're like, okay, we get it already, but they're still tightening the screw. Um, the Westminster Divines identified six types of application. There is uh, the public, uh, what is it called? The public worship, the directory of public worship was put together by the Westminster Assembly around 1648, and it kind of identified what Puritan church service should, services should look like. And they even identified the six different types of application. You don't have to write these down, but you can look this up. Just look at the, uh, public, the, the public directory of worship. Uh, one was instruction. Okay, that makes sense. Secondly was confutation. That means refuting error. Uh, third was exhortation. That's to obey God. Then dehortation. These are new words for me. Which was rebuking sin and encouraging people to hate it. Uh, comfort, press on in the good fight of faith, and then trial. And what they meant by trial was self-examination, to look at yourself and try what the Word of God has said compared to your life. So that was their idea of plain application. So still under the category of plain, we also have a plain delivery. They avoided anything that was not clear. They didn't want ambiguity. Um, and I think that speaks to uh, the, cl the clarity of Scripture, and they wanted preaching to be clear as well. Um, the, they're coming out of an age of uh, just, just mystery and uh, in, in the dark ages of just different ways of interpreting the Bible that a lot of times you couldn't get the main point because of all the different things that were being taught. Um, so they want a plain de delivery. One Puritan says, An iron key which fits the lock is more useful than a golden one, which will not open the door to the treasure. So, um, and this plain delivery involves intense study and preparation. Um, sometimes the hardest thing to do is to say something plain. And um, so it takes study in order to do that, to say, to narrow things down to their finest points. Uh, next is plain dependency. So there is a spiritual, act. so all this, right, last week all I talked about was the Spirit and the Word, the Spirit and the Word, Spirit and the Word, and all I'm talking about is preaching, but it's dependent upon the Spirit. Um, there's a spiritual aspect to preaching. The preacher must feel their inability to bring anyone to Christ. That's the Spirit's work. Um, their job is merely to publish the gospel. That's to say it, to proclaim it, and then God does the work. Um, both the preacher and the hearer are dependent on the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit brings the presence of God into the hearts of men, not the preacher. Watson says, ministers knock at the door of men's heart. The Spirit comes with a key and opens the door. A lot of key and door illustrations. It's good. Um, and that begs the necessity of prayer as well, which should be saturated in the, in the, in the pastor's preparation of his sermon petitioning God to work um, through the words that he uses and that he preaches. Um, another Puritan says, many good sermons are lost for lack of much prayer and study. And I would say many good sermons are lost potentially because we aren't faithful to pray as well. So I would encourage you to do that. Uh, last point under plainness is plain holiness. Preaching must be accompanied by the grace of a holy life. Thomas Watson says, Our ministry is at 
our heart is as our heart is. No man arises much above the level of his habitual godliness. Owen says, if a man teaches uprightly and walks crookedly, more will fall down in the night of his life than he built in the day of his doctrine. Um, so that preachers are called to live what they preach. Um, the Puritans didn't do this perfectly. I think it's important to say that. But these are the hallmarks of their preaching and their pastoral ministry. So that gets us through um, plainness. Next is program for preaching. So why is there a program for preaching, Matt? This is weird. Don't they just preach? Don't they just study and preach the word? But they, they preach in a lot of different ways. So let's talk about those. One, obviously, just preaching in the church, right? So where they were called to be uh, faithful pastors of a congregation, they preached faithfully there. Oftentimes, those pastors preached five times a week. It's a different age, different era. Um, people all lived and worked nearby, unlike all of us, all spread out all over the place. Uh, but they saw preaching to their flock as their first and principal duty. Um, the second aspect of the program for preaching, though, is lectureships. Um, so these were gatherings um, that were sponsored by leadership in a community, either wealthy people or a group of people that said, hey, we need somebody to come teach to us throughout the week. Um, and this was, um, these were lectures that were given, and really what this is, is the precursor to the, like the modern Bible study. So ISI or women's ministry or Bible podcast you're listening to, they'd have, somebody would come into an area and say, hey, we want this Puritan. These weren't always Puritans, but for the most part they were. We want a Puritan to lecture us or lead us in instruction of the Bible. Um, and a lot of times, if you were in a community where there was more conformity to the Church of England, there would be an absence of good teaching. So these lectures provided good teaching for the church. Um, in the 1600s, early 1600s, there was 300 of these lectures in London alone, and most of them were Puritans. Um, and not only were they taught by Puritans, but local pastors in a lot of instances who were trying to conform to the Church of England would also attend these. So they were being influenced by Puritan leaders. Uh, William Perkins, Richard Sibbs, Thomas Cartwright, William Ames, and many others served in this capacity. Uh, this allowed Puritans to preach apart from the formal Church of England. So those um, Puritan pastors that were quote-unquote nonconformists, their conscience says, I can't follow the prayer book exactly. They're making that decision on their own. This gave them an avenue to preach. And it, I talked about all those legislations that were passed in the late 1600s that forbid these kind of things, and these got forbidden eventually. But at some point, they were able to faithfully administer uh, God's word to the people that way. Um, but as the, as, the, as the Puritans gained more power, and eventually as the Puritan Revolution takes place in the 1640s, 1650s. Um, as the monarchy is restored in the 1660s, they start taking away this freedom for the Puritans as well. So, um, and that becomes an issue of conscience for the Puritans as well. All right, so we've talked about preaching in the church, lectureships. Now we get to talk about prophesyings. And this is not a reference to the Acts 2 that I was reading when Peter was talking about prophesying. But what prophesying were was a group 
I had no idea about this, okay? So this is just brand new for me. So a group of five or six pastors or preachers in a given area would meet together, and what they would do is they would each take one text of Scripture, and they'd all preach on the same thing. And they would pick out among, they would always start with the youngest pastor or preacher, and then go to the oldest one. And um, the, they would pick out a moderator who would then, after all five or six of them have preached on the same text, would evaluate how they did. So this is like a continuing education for pastors. So a lot of us do continuing education courses for various things, but this was a tool they used to grow. So there was mentorship from the older pastors to the younger ones, and I bet there was enthusiasm from the younger ones to the older ones, and that was really helpful for them. Very cool. Um, this was a method of skill develop development, and um, one of the leading Puritans of the day actually used this at Christ College in Cambridge to help um, train pastors. Um, and at some point during these, they allowed the public to attend, and they allowed for question and answer periods. That's kind of fun. I like to do that part. Not preach in front of those other people. Um, D, they also had books of sermons. Uh, Puritan preaching gained popularity due to it being collected into volumes, printed, and published. In the 1560s, so that's the, the initial part of Elizabeth's reign in England, there were nine volumes of Puritan preaching published. In the 1570s, there was 69. In the 1580s, there was 113. And in, 15, in the 1590s, there was 140. 40% 40 of all printed material during the reign of Queen Elizabeth, was religious in nature. Um, in the 1600s, though, this is startling, over 700 Puritan volumes of preaching of their sermons were translated into Dutch. That's a lot of work. Um, just a lot of work in preaching. Uh, sermons were the basis for Puritan writing. So if you pick up a Puritan work, the likelihood of it being written... Uh, just as a work on itself, it probably was preached first and put together. So unlikely that it was just written that way. So about 90% of all their public, published works were first sermons. That's a lot of sermons. Um, they also emphasized ministerial training. Uh, both universities at Oxford and Cambridge had Puritan influences at different times. At Cambridge, um, uh, Emmanuel College began which became a hotbed for Puritan training in the 1600s. So, very mainline secular universities of today, Oxford and Cambridge, um, did a lot to train pastors, much like most of the Ivy League schools in America were founded for biblical training for pastors. Um, six, there was also a passion for preaching. We've got to get moving here. They had a, the Puritans had a passion for preaching. They loved the work of preaching. They knew and they relished um, the time that it took to prepare, that it was significant to prepare for preaching. They relished not only preaching itself, but also preparing for it. Um, they loved the act of preaching. It was one of the primary means that God used to save the elect. That's what the Puritans believed, that preaching, and we would say that, God's word is what is used um, by the Spirit to save people. Um, but they emphasized preaching. Perkins says it was the goal of the preacher to collect the church, um, 
it, the goal of preaching was to collect the church and accomplish the number of the elect. It was God's instrument to do that. Um, they also believed in preaching to themselves. Bunyan said, I preached what I felt, what I smartingly or painfully did feel. Uh, Baxter says, preach to yourselves first before you preach to the people and with greater zeal. O Lord, save thy church from worldly pastors that study and learn the art of Christianity and ministry, but never had the Christian divine nature nor the vital principle which must difference them in their service from the dead. So, pastors, preach to yourself too. So, they love preaching. They love the gospel. Um, they love the entire gospel. The idea that man, they love the idea of talking about man's sinfulness, that the grace of God in Christ Jesus was sufficient to save man. And they stressed the need for repentance and faith. Um, they did not separate in their preaching of Christ his benefits from his person. He was preached as both Savior and Lord. Perkins says, the sum of the sum, preach one Christ by Christ to the praise of Christ. So Christ-centeredness in their preaching. Christ was precious to them. And he was able and willing to save lost sinners. Uh, they also, obviously, in their preaching of that, they loved people. All right. And this is one, I think this is from Owen. He says, I have, as he, in their love for people and pleading with people to come to Christ, he said, I have good news for you. I have a Savior for you. I have forgiveness of sins to offer you. God loves sinners so much that he's making you the tremendous offer of eternal life. And God beseeches you now to receive it. He hath no desire in your death. He does not want you to perish but live. So they loved people and pleaded with them to repent and believe. Um, last page on your, uh, the example of John Owen, uh, I mean, sorry, of John Bunyan. So John Bunyan, you guys remember Pastor Dan preached on John Bunyan, not a, we've talked all about this in the study of the Puritan John Bunyan, naturally gifted but not necessarily learned, didn't go to training at Cambridge or Oxford, um, yet uh, one of the greatest preachers of all time, John Owen, the greatest theologian of this age, said about um, John Bunyan when Charles II said, hey, why are you going to see that guy? What's going on there? And he says, may it please your majesty, could I possess the tinker's ability, tinker, that's what, his, that's what he did, what uh, Bunyan did, could I possess the tinker's ability for preaching? I would willingly relinquish all my learning. So he held him in high esteem. Um, Bunyan's preaching was to the heart. He was trying to pierce the heart of his hearers. Um, as a preacher, he enlightened the mind and pierced the heart of his hearers. It was at the heart where he aimed his primary arrow. He believed in what was called participatory preaching which is pretty much the idea that he expects when you hear God's word, there'd be a response. Um, that's not to say he's having an altar call or anything like that, but he wants people to be involved in that. I loved this section I put on your handout about, um, it is on your, yeah, I'm reading your handout. The Jerusalem sinner saved, and think about this in the context of Acts chapter 2. Okay, so I'm going to read this for you. Um, so Peter preached, repent, every one of you, be baptized, every one of you, in his name for the remission of sins. And you shall, every one of you, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Objector has an objection. 
but I was one of them that plotted to take away his life. May I be saved by him? Peter, every one of you. Objection. But I was one of them that bear false witness against him. Is there grace for me? Peter, for every one of you. But I was one of them that cried out, crucify him, crucify him, and desired that Barabbas, the murderer, might live rather than him. What will become of me, think you? I am to preach repentance and remissions of sins to every one of you. But I was one of them that spit in his face when he stood before his accusers. I was also one that mocked him when in anguish he hanged bleeding on the tree. Is there room for me, Peter says, for every one of you? But I was one of them that in his extremity said, Give him gall and vinegar to drink. Why may not I expect the same when anguish and guilt is upon me? Peter says, Repent of these, your wickedness, and here is remissions of sins for every one of you. Again, but I railed on him, I reviled him, I hated him. I rejoiced to see him mocked at by others. Can there be hopes for me? And Peter says, There is for every one of you. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Just, you see, the, I mean, that, that begs a response. It's amazing to think about. Like, no one is outside the reach of God's grace because of their sin. God's grace is greater than their sin. Um, so he's appealing to people to make, um, to rely on Christ. So he pled with them in his preaching. He implored his hearers to forsake sin and to embrace Jesus, and he exalted Christ. And that's the last quote I have for you in his, one of his sermons called Saved by Grace. It's a collection of his works. And it says, O oh, Son of God, grace was in all thy tears. Grace came bubbling out of thy side with thy blood. Grace came forth with every word of thy sweet mouth. Grace came out where the whip smote thee, where the thorns pricked thee, where the nails and spear pierce thee. O blessed Son of God, here is grace indeed, unsearchable riches of grace, unthought of riches of grace, grace to make angels wonder, grace to make sinners happy, grace to astonish devils. Praise the Lord for His grace. And I hope that we would see um, through this brief study, or long, depending on how you feel about it, study of the Puritans, that you would see Christ as preeminent and that Christ's grace being greater than our sin. Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you for um, the gospel of grace available through Jesus. God, I praise you that you love sinners and that you save sinners, you justify the ungodly, and Lord, the evidence of your salvation of sinners is in the gift of Jesus to purchase our salvation. So Lord, what a great, um, unexpressible gift that you've given us, Lord, and we praise you for that. Lord, I ask as we go to the worship service, Lord, that our hearts would be in tune to worship you, both in spirit and in truth. And Lord, I ask that you would bless our time. In Christ's name I pray, amen.